Good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. Thanks for joining me today. And welcome to our discussion of medical benefits in New York workers' compensation cases. And before you say, wait, Greg, this is boring. Uh, I already know all this stuff. Uh, bear with me because we're going to um, approach this topic from uh, a little bit of a different angle than maybe it's you've seen it uh, been approached from before. And, and my goal is how does our uh, opportunities um, to move the litigation or to create moments of leverage, um, how do those get amplified by understanding how the medical treatment system works, by utilizing independent medical evaluations, and by challenging unnecessary care. And I'm gonna talk about both the tactical and the strategic impacts of that on your cases. So thanks for joining me today. Um, if you're here today, uh, it's to learn a little bit about New York Workers' Comp, and uh, thanks for joining us. This presentation is for instructional purposes only, so thanks for jumping in. Now, before I get into what we're gonna to cover today, I'm hoping everyone had an opportunity to download from the, um, the handout section all of the materials for today and you're going to see it's like the copy of this big book okay and this book that you're receiving uh, is our lesson book and this is what we use internally when we train our attorneys uh, and our paraprofessionals so this is the same materials and we are currently on uh, chapter two in our book or lesson two which is medical treatment and so my intention today is really to share with you uh, the training that the same exact training, the same materials that we do with our in-house attorneys and paraprofessionals. Uh, we are 51 attorneys and 50 paraprofessionals who focus primarily on workers' compensation defense. So this is what we do, and we spend a lot of our time and effort training and making sure people are on the same page. So today we're going to talk about medical treatment uh, in general. I'm going to talk about how we uh, tactically, when we challenge it, what how this is going to impact your exposure and what you can do to reduce your exposure. I've got to talk a little bit, just briefly, about the medical treatment guidelines, how they impact your cases, and what, how to get more learning or more education on that. I'm going to just touch on the onboard system. I'm going to talk briefly about disability duration guidelines, and I'm going to try to focus my uh, presentation today on what we can do to challenge unnecessary medical, what we can do to limit our exposure in these cases. And I'm going to talk about the grenades that we get to throw into opposing counsel's case when we challenge case parts of their cases and body parts and unnecessary treatment and why and how and when we do it. Now, um, we have this overall belief that all cases fall into the following buckets. It's either a fact case, a risk transfer case, a controvert, a legal controversy case, a litigation case, or it's a case where uh, all that's left to do is settle, right? This topic that we're talking about fits into that overarching sort of review that we have of our cases. Um, you're gonna use medical uh, and medical challenges as a way to create leverage in your case. So this is part of litigating a case to conclusion. Our job here is to do tactical actions and to recommend actions which are gonna move the case closer to closure. Uh, we've got to create disruption in our New York workers' compensation case so that we can be in control of these cases, right? That's my actual job. My job is actually to try to help you regain control of these sometimes feeling out of control matters and give you options and opportunities and to create jeopardy in the case for the other side because our entire system, last, last month we talked about the five presumptions uh, that 
uh, really uh, sort of hand everything to claimant that claimant wants and takes the power away from us as employers. My job is to give you that power back and to try to balance out this system. So applying this to medical and, and our overarching philosophy here of using action to create leverage in your cases, we're going to have to challenge unnecessary treatment. We will sometimes have to obtain contradictory in, independent medical evaluations. We have to hire experts and forensic experts sometimes to challenge unnecessary care and we are going to have to obtain testimony, usually the testimony of medical experts, in order to cre create that uh, leverage in our cases. Of course, we're going to try to keep our clients informed and think, keep thinking about how this is going to enable us to close the case. That's where we want to spend most of our time, in that action loop, moving these cases to closure. All right, let's apply all of this stuff in our overarching sort of philosophy of how we handle workers' compensation claims and apply it now to uh, medical benefits. So medical benefits is one of the key benefits to for employees. Uh, the second benefit is indemnity benefits, that's wage replacement. The third benefit, of course, is permanent residual disability, and there are death and dependency benefits. Now we're talking today about medical benefits, which are going to drive wage replacement. Remember, wage replacement in this jurisdiction is based on medical impairment. So uh, when the claimant is medically impaired, they get entitled to wage replacement, and what we have discovered is it is not the need for treatment which is uh, driving these cases and pushing these cases forward. It's the fact that the wage replacement is based on going to the doctor as often as you possibly can, or maybe as, as few times as you can, depending on sort of what you're trying to do in your case as a claimant. And so we really need to think about how the medical is driving the exposures in this case. And that's really what I'm thinking about when I'm defending these cases. Uh, the claimant is entitled to medical treatment well, until they die, once their workers' compensation case is established. Uh, and they're entitled to both curative and palliative care. So they're entitled to anything they need. So curative care is, is care that actually gets you to a medical plateau or betters you. Um, or restores functioning and reduces impairment. Those are all um, co-definitions of curative. Palliative means you simply feel better, right? Or uh, your function is maintained. So going to a chiropractor once a month uh, and getting an adjustment, it's not going to cure you of anything, but it might continue you at your current level of functioning. And so for that reason, we call that palliative. Now, indemnity benefits Wage replacement ends when the claimant reaches maximum medical improvement. So as you can imagine, uh, there's a lot of uh, resistance to being found uh, at maximum medical improvement. But that doesn't mean the impaired uh, claimant, the person who has a significant debilitating injury, uh, doesn't receive any more money, right? Because once the wage replacement ends, and it ends at maximum medical improvement, if they still have a permanent residual disability, meaning a permanent impairment of their wage earning capacity, well, then they can get a permanent award for permanent partial or permanent total disability. So they're not out of luck. So the concepts that we're talking about, the general things that we're saying is, hey, they're always entitled to curative and palliative care. Once they reach maximum medical improvement, which is, the, which is defined by treatment, is no longer curative. It's no longer restorative, we're not returning function, we're simply making them feel better or maintaining them at a plateau, then they're entitled to palliative care. Now at maximum medical improvement, our goal is, hey, now we're stopping uh, paying wage replacement, and if they have an impairment, we're gonna push them towards a permanent rate, permanency rating if we can, or try to resolve or close that case if there is no permanent residual disability. 
I'd like to remind everyone that a claimant cannot be both temporarily and permanently disabled at the same time. There can be periods of temporary disability after permanency has been reached, and we see that people flipping back and forth between periods of temporary disability and periods of permanent residual disability. Uh, but we're really going to talk about uh, the impact of medical treatment on temporary disability. So the other thing I like to think about is when we are attacking or challenging what the claimant is demanding or requesting, is it a tactical or strategic thing that we are doing? Now, I'm going to tell you that 99 times out of 100, when you are challenging medical treatment, you're saying, judge, this treatment is unnecessary. Judge, this treatment is no longer curative. Judge, this treatment is for a body part that shouldn't be established. Um, you know, you're going to uh, causal relationship or the necessity of care. When you're making all those challenges, I want you to think that's generally going to be a tactical challenge. And when, even when you win, so we can prove to the court that the claimant should not receive a specific surgery or maybe the claimant uh, is not entitled to uh, establish an additional body part, we can win on that, but it's tactical in the sense that the claimant has the opportunity to re-request either that treatment or try to re-establish that body part. Uh, in other words, these are not strategic wins, right? And the other thing that we're doing is by challenging unnecessary medical and trying to show that the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement, uh, we are trying to put an end to uh, wage replacement in the short term. And again, that's often a short-term stop. We can prove that uh, the claimant has reached a plateau and they no longer need that specific type of care. And we can get uh, the wage replacement maybe ended because they're at maximum medical improvement, but that doesn't stop, for example, the claimant to going out and getting another medical opinion, which says they need some other new exotic and probably unnecessary care and restarting the whole process. So we're gonna fight on medical treatment. We're gonna challenge indemnity benefits, but we all need to understand on the employment side of the house that these are often tactical short-term uh, stops or short-term results that we're getting and the claimant does have the opportunity to go back and try to resume uh, either medical care or indemnity benefits and that's why it's uh, sometimes a focus to try to uh, uh, reduce or stop or challenge permanent disability because that is a strategic end to the case uh, once you resolve those issues uh, they are resolved all right uh, one more thing Tentative rates in this jurisdiction. So before I get into some specific tactics, I just want to talk about one thing that drives me crazy and that is absolutely verboten or forbidden at Lois Law Firm, which is the tentative or compromised rate. So oftentimes when we are challenging unnecessary treatment, we are challenging the unnecessary care or we are challenging that the claimant has an entitlement to ongoing wage replacement. And again, we might be doing this uh, for tactical purposes to try to gain leverage in the case and bring opposition to the negotiating table. Or we could be challenging them because the claimant's been out of work for four years. They've been getting back rubs at a chiropractor. It's, they're not getting any better. We have to push and argue that they've re reached maximum medical improvement. Now, this is the sneaky moment when opposing counsel will come forward and say, oh, we could litigate this issue of maximum medical improvement, but do we want to go through that? You're going to have to get an expert, and I'm going to have to get the doctor, and we're going to have to depose them. There's all so much work. Why don't we just be real nice guys, and we'll all just reach a compromised rate? And instead of saying that they're uh, at maximum medical improvement, we'll just say they're 50% disabled or something less disabled than you know the 
uh, your physician is maybe saying they are. Okay, so it'll seem so reasonable and they'll put their arm around you and really try to cajole you into doing this. Uh, but my p position is, no, we should almost never agree to a tentative or compromised rate in a New York workers' compensation case. If you do so, you are giving up your right to raise labor market attachment as a defense to, to the case, uh, which is insane. That's one of your most powerful and most important things that you can be doing. And if you give up that opportunity, that is crazy to me, and that is uh, not useful. You've you know, given up one of your main pieces of ammunition in a case. Um, and the second thing is you're not really even agreeing to anything because the claimant always has the opportunity under the case law to argue later, well, judge, yes, we did reach a compromised rate for a short-term period, judge, but now that we have the, uh, we've resolved the case, or maybe we've come to the end of the case and we're litigating permanency, judge, can you go back and find that all those periods that were paid at that compromise rate shouldn't have been paid at a compromise rate? They should have been paid at a much higher rate? How frustrating. I mean, you you're feel like you're kicking the can down the road, but you're actually not. And so for those reasons, tentative rates should really never be done in this jurisdiction. And that's our practice standard to never do that. And I think that is a best practice, and we recommend that to everyone. All right. What you're going to see frequently in the types of litigation that's going to emerge around medical treatment is a difference on the degree of disability between uh, perhaps the treating physician and an independent medical examiner's opinion. Um, once there's a, a dispute there, that's an opportunity. Okay, so look at that as an opportunity to create leverage in your case. Um, if you're currently paying, meaning under an order, a judicial order to continue payments, uh, you've got to unfortunately file a request for further action, which is an RFA 2, which is asking the judge to address this. However, if you're not under a judicial order and you get contradictory medical that says the claimant has a lower degree of disability than they're claiming, well, then you can simply unilaterally reduce or suspend payment, right? You can do some self-help. Uh, when this happens in your case, by the way, now your case is starting to move in your direction, your exposure analysis should change in that case. And we should really be telling you, here's what this case is now worth. Uh, it's also a good opportunity to solicit a settlement demand and really start trying to resolve this case because you've got some leverage. Again, never stipulate to a tentative rate when you start getting some good contradictory medical facts in your case. Uh, this is your opportunity to raise labor market attachment, as we'll talk about next month, and really get into that. So um, that's our overall outlook on when we're looking at medical treatment. We're saying to ourselves, hey, I don't want to give up any leverage points. Uh, I want to be able to raise these issues as strenuously as I can because there are so few opportunities for us to get in control of the workers' compensation case. Now, in general, medical treatment has no waiting period. That's unlike indemnity benefits, which do have a seven-day waiting period in this jurisdiction. Unfortunately, the claimant can pick any physician of their own choosing. Now, I got a lot of clients who say, but Greg, there's a law in the books that says I can create my own preferred provider organization, or PPO, and I can control medical that way. And I said, yeah, that's great, except for the law also says that they can opt out of that preferred provider organization within 30 days. So what we have seen is some of our clients have adopted PPOs. The claimant goes into the PPO for a month, and after as soon as they can, on the day 31, they're out of that PPO, and they're going back to physicians that their attorneys are selecting for them. Um, I'd also like to just say at this moment, maybe it's a good moment to take a breath. I'm going to explain to you my personal biases. I run Lois Law Firm. There's 51 attorneys here. 
All we do is workers' comp defense. We get on average 400 to 500 cases referred here each month. So tremendous experience. But remember, I don't see any of the nice cases. I don't see any of the nice little old ladies who slip and fall and fracture their risk and are out of work for three weeks and come back to work. I don't see any of those cases. I only see litigated cases. Uh, so when I'm talking about aggressively defending a case or being an advocate or pushing, it's because I'm only seeing the litigated context. Um, and so just be, keep that thought in mind before you say, wow, this guy's a really mean guy. Now, I know that 90% of people get injured at work, never file a claim and never go to court, right? I get that. Uh, but those aren't the ones I see. And that's why my personal bias on this is a little different. So I just wanted to take that deep breath and explain to everyone where I'm coming from. And probably if you're doing this and you're on this webinar, uh, it's probably because you're in a similar seat, right? Um, now, we do, of course, have the opportunity to select a physician for the claimant if they are unable to do so for themselves. And what that literally means is they have to be so incapacitated, they can't select their own doctor. So they get knocked out, they get run over, they're so injured they can't speak, then of course we would have the right to select and control care for them. Our job, mainly in this system, the way it's been designed, is simply to pay for medical care. And the good news is there is a medical fee schedule. Uh, we are always required to pay every medical bill, and the medical providers are never allowed to co-bill or uh, ask for co-pays or any kind of contribution from the claimant. So that's uh, positive for them. The fee schedule is very effective. It covers probably 95% of the types of injuries you will see in the workers' compensation context. One of the only contexts that we're not seeing is some. there are some durable goods and some very, very exotic treatments that won't be covered by the fee schedule, but the majority of them are covered. Uh, where I have a lot of interaction with the fee schedule is in that a lot of claimants live in New Jersey, so they start getting medical care in New Jersey uh, as opposed to New York because, again, they're allowed to do that. They're allowed to get medical care in the state in which they reside. Uh, and unfortunately, the medical providers in New Jersey are not used to a medical fee schedule. They are used to what's called usual and customary. And so that creates some disputes where they file medical provider applications. Unfortunately, that's become a big part of our business. We're defending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of medical provider applications filed in New Jersey Workers' Compensation Court for treatment related to New York workers' compensation cases. And you should just know if, you're, if you are facing that challenge, uh, this is the law firm that created the case law showing why there is no jurisdiction in this state um, uh, for a New York workers' compensation claimant who's receiving medical care in New Jersey uh, to escape the fee schedule and charge usual and customary. Uh, the decision that I'm referring to is called Watrick, uh, that Watrick decision. We obtained that decision in February of 2023, so about a year ago we obtained the uh, the case law that we are now using to get all of those cases dismissed. So if you have that challenge, speak to me. I can help you out with it or direct you to the right case law on that. So again, our concepts always entitled to curative and palliative care. We're always looking for maximum medical improvement. Now, we have to attack unnecessary medical care. We absolutely have to do it. This is our opportunity to throw a grenade in the case and challenge it because medical care in this jurisdiction even though it isn't expensive because we have a fee schedule, it drives lost time. And when, when it drives lost time, it, it becomes the tool by which claimants utilize to extend and increase the exposure in your cases. Look, I, we don't go to court anymore, right? Because the court system has gone mandatorily virtual. 
but I've been doing this for over two decades. I used to go to court and I would be in the parts and I would hear my adversary say to their client, you know what your job is now? Your job is to go to the doctor. You gotta go to the doctor at least once a month, but no, you know, no fewer than once every 90 days. You have to go to the doctor, that's your job. And they're told this, they're actually instructed, just keep going to the doctor and you can stay out of work. So we have to challenge body parts coming in and the need for uh, unnecessary treatment. We've got to fight on that. We have to force them to pursue their claim and we have to create these burdens and we have to attack. Now there's a couple reasons. Claimant has a high degree of control over their lost time. They can control lost time by selecting physicians that they know are gonna take them out of work forever. And how do they know these physicians are gonna take them out of work forever? Are they reading the case law and studying the doctor's curriculum vitae? Absolutely not. Their attorneys are sending them to these specific physicians. There's a reason when you're presiding over thousands of these cases, as I am, you see the same doctors over and over and over again because their attorneys are pushing them to these doctors that are gonna keep them out of work. So they're controlling how much money they're getting, how much lost time they're getting by selecting doctors that are not going to really try to push them to maximum medical improvement. They are going to control lost time by delaying necessary treatment. Okay, uh, it's crazy to me how many claimants will say, well, I was recommended to undergo this surgery. And you'll say, okay, well, that was a year ago. How come you haven't got it? Well, I'm thinking about it. You know, I'm considering it maybe, you know. What? They're pondering care for, for six months, a year at a time. I, I've had claimants come in to tell uh, the judges, well, judge, I didn't get the, uh, the treatment. I've been thinking about it. I'm nervous about having surgery. And I've banged my hand on Castleton. I go, well, if your condition is so debilitating, you can't go to work, but it's not so bad that you don't really even want to get it treated, Judge. How significant is this treatment, right? So they'll delay necessary treatment. They'll delay testing. You know, the doctor, or the orthopedist will say, okay, we need an MRI. And they'll wait three weeks or a month to schedule their MRI. Guess what? That's a month out of work while they just waited to get a test. The claimant in this jurisdiction only has to show medical evidence of their treatment and disability every 90 days. So literally they only have to go to the doctor once every couple months in order to keep the gravy train of wage replacement checks going. That's crazy. If someone really had a significant medical condition, they would not be allowing 90 days to elapse between seeing any kind of medical care or physician. That's just ridiculous to me. And the last thing is there's an actual incentive. So those are all incentives that I'm, I'm suggesting to you. The, the claimant put the, puts it together in their head and they say, oh, I realize I can stretch this out by just you know, spacing out my doctor visits and spacing out my treatment and maybe delaying treatment, right? But the system actually has a, a, a totally uh, clear financial incentive for claimant to increase temporary total disability and stay out of work longer because the longer you stay out of work for a scheduled loss of use body part, the larger your award's gonna be. It's built into the statute. It's called protracted healing period. And again, I'm gonna talk about that more next month. So there are absolute financial incentives for there to be over-treatment and there for them to resist being found at maximum medical improvement. So we've got to challenge unnecessary medical and we've also got to challenge unnecessary body parts. Uh, it's gonna reduce your exposure in strategic ways. Um, first, if you can get a body part excluded, right, a body part or an entire condition excluded from your case, well, that's a strategic win. Like, you're never going to have to worry about being exposed for that exact treatment uh, or that body part again. That's great. Also, a strategic in the 
if you can reduce the amount of lost time, you can reduce the potential for protracted healing period. Now, I have this little handy dandy back of the napkin way of, of figuring out exposure. You look at the body part or condition, you think about how it's gonna be compensated. We've gotta look at what the rate is and what the likely award's gonna be. You're then gonna reduce it by the amount of risk transfer or apportionment available, and then any other discount, which could be a litigation discount, meaning you know that you're gonna do a good job and you have better witnesses than they do, and so you're going to be able to introduce more jeopardy into their case. So the first step is identifying the body part or condition. The next step is gonna be thinking about, okay, what are the likely exposure ranges for these, this body part or condition? You know, that's gonna translate into a dollar award paid out over weeks. All right, is there gonna be anything that's gonna reduce that? Uh, and is there any way uh, that the further litigation, I can introduce Jeopardy, which will further reduce that overall exposure, right? So that's what we're thinking about. So when I'm challenging necessary treatment uh, that's curative and palliative, I'm really trying to uh, ultimately control what the exposure in this case is. And this is within our control. We should be thinking about this when we challenge medical. So the first step is the claimant's trying to get body parts and conditions established. How are they doing that? Well, they can put it in their employee claim form, uh, what their injuries are, but typically as they continue to obtain additional medical care and they start bringing in more body parts, if we don't challenge those body parts, they're gonna be considered as established in the case. It's gonna be very easy to say, judge, they've been paying for treatment for this body part for six months, of course it must be established. And look, the doctor causally relates it, and the reason they're saying that, of course, is because the doctor is causally relating everything. Now, remember your Section 21 presumptions. I talked about them in last month's presentation. But those presumptions are that if anything that's included in the medical record is considered, considered prima facie evidence of a causally related injury. Now, the medical records are further something you need to focus your attention on because, remember, they only have to go to the doctor every 90 days. Is that reasonable? In most cases, that's not reasonable to only go to the doctor once every three months. Um, the doctor has to file all the records with the board. That's in order for them to get paid. So uh, they're gonna generally be there. We generally don't spend time in this jurisdiction hunting around and trying to get compliance with requests for medical records. We generally have access to them very easily. But I think the place we need to spend more time and effort is reading those records carefully. More and more I am seeing the use of uh, nurse practitioners uh, and other types of quasi-medical providers uh, who are just really parroting complaints, right? Like, no offense, but a nurse practitioner, that's like a government-created job. Nobody said, I don't wanna go to see a doctor anymore, I wanna go see a nurse practitioner, right? That's because there's just so much paperwork and nonsense and bureaucracy in our system, we've created these, these roles here. Uh, and what I've seen is nurse practitioners or physician's assistants uh, who are simply parroting complaints, it gets into the report, uh, and the doctor's not even present, right? And the doctor is just, by, by the telemedicine rules, only has to be available by phone. So we have these para-physicians taking care of patients, we have the actual physician who's gonna be signing these documents, not even present in the building. Be mindful about that. Um, that's great grounds for cross-examination. Uh, when their doctor who took the history and the doctor who did the exam and the doctor who comes up with the diagnosis and the, and the medical professional who comes up with the causal relationship are all different people, it's really an interesting opportunity for us on cross-examination to really take their cases apart. So just be mindful about that. 
But also I read the records just because sometimes we'll find them contradicting themselves on what the mechanism of injury is. In fact, I'm defending a case right now in which first it was, I don't know how I hit the floor. I mean, I just lost consciousness and I just woke up on the floor. Next it was somebody opened a door and pushed me down. And the third thing is I slipped on something. And this is all the same accident, right? You just look at the different medical records. Three very distinctly different stories given to three medical professionals. And that gives you an opportunity to challenge the whole case and say, well, how is this person credible if they're telling their medical provider three different stories, Judge? And that's also, by the way, an opportunity to flip those Section 21 presumptions. You know, if a medical record is going to be admissible into evidence, um, and it's not hearsay, right? It's not, even, even though it is, right? It's pure hearsay. It's, it's, a, it's a, a statement which is asking to be accepted for the truth of the matter asserted therein with no opportunity to cross-examine it. If they're trying to do that, well, we can also use that to impeach them or attack their credibility. It should work the other way as well. So just be mindful about that. The medical record forms have changed. Uh, and since 2021, we are now using CMS 1500 forms, which as you know, are garbage forms. They're just nonsense meant to be read by computers. And so what we're seeing is every doctor just has to staple onto the back of that CMS-1500 form their actual medical narrative, which would actually contain their description of what the medical treatment is and what the diagnosis is, the subjective findings, objective findings, and what the treatment plan is going to be. So, you know, we're going to look through that um, as well. Now, um, uh, my big interest is how do we reduce the time reviewing and summarizing records, um, and how do we uh, get better at getting good information out of these medical records. Uh, but right now, it's the old-fashioned way. We're reviewing them and summarizing them and utilizing them in our cross-examinations. Um, New York also allows for medications and travel to and from medical appointments to be compensated. And New York has a special, special form for that because, of course, they like special forms. Uh, the mileage rate reimbursement request just went up on January 1st and it is currently the same one as the federal tax rate. Now, we've talked a lot about the Section 21 presumptions, but the, they're really important when you think about medical and surgical reports. The fifth medical, I'm sorry, the fifth presumption in Section 21 of the workers' compensation law is that the contents of medical and surgical reports introduced in evidence by claimants for compensation shall, that's the word shall, not may, but shall constitute prima facie evidence of fact as to the matter contained therein. In other words, the judge is supposed to just accept what's in the medicals, but of course, they can be rebutted. Oftentimes, they're gonna be rebutted based on the absolutely self-contradictory statements that are contained in them, or the clearly incredible statements that are contained. Uh, oftentimes, those will be around mechanism of injury, or those types of statements would be statements surrounding the claimant's activities of daily living, which clearly are exceeded, either uh, exceeded by way of covert surveillance or observations we're making, or just common sense. I love it when I read a doctor's report and it says the claimant's only capable of sedentary duty, or maybe not even capable of that, they can't even sit still for half an hour, and then you discover, well, they're actually taking the subway to and from their home in Queens to the doctor's appointments, and it's 40 minutes each way. And you say, well, wait a second, how, well, these two things are not possible. So, you know, be mindful that even though a statement may be contained in the medical record, we are still going to be able to challenge it. Now, we've got to challenge them from establishing in additional body parts. Um, 
And, and they're doing this, again, to get uh, to obtain money. But they're also doing it, in, particularly in the context of civil actions or third-party civil claims. The workers' compensation claim is sort of used uh, as the uh, way of funding or building up that civil action. And what we see is cases where we know the claimant is going to bring a claim, uh, a civil action against the third party. We see them doing this. They're trying to get as much medical as possible. They don't care about uh, if the medical is getting them any better. They're trying to get every body part they can thrown in because ultimately the attorney knows, hey, uh, I'm going to be before a jury of 12 a year from now, and I want to go on to my board of specials, and I want to list... 15 different body parts and tons and tons of medical care and all different providers. I want to put all that up there because the jury isn't told, oh, by the way, that was all paid for by workers' compensation and that's all been compensated already. The jury just sees, whoa, look at all these medical bills and all this medical treatment. There really must be a really bad problem. And so they're utilizing this as a way to build up that civil action. Now, sometimes that's good for us, right, because that just means there's more reimbursement to us. But personally, I'd rather not pay the money out first and then need to be reimbursed from it, okay? Um, the last thing is that doctors generally do not find maximum medical improvement in this jurisdiction. You know, we say that a finding of maximum medical improvement by the claimant's selected treating physician is like a unicorn. We all know what a unicorn looks like. No one's ever seen it. So it is very rare for the treating physician in a litigated case to ever say, yep, uh, you've uh, reached maximum medical improvement. You don't need my care anymore you know, you're done, your journey with me has come to an end. It just never happens. The only time I actually ever see that happen is the treating doctor is treating someone and eventually the claimant says, okay, uh, doc, I probably should have told you this, but I've already returned to work. And then all of a sudden the doctor's note will go from saying temporarily totally disabled for three years to uh, able to do some work, right? So that, that's when they'll generally change it. It's they're being told by the claimant, ah, uh, you better change your notes because uh, I've changed uh, my lifestyle. So how do we challenge these sites? What do we do? Um, the first thing is, do we have any facts that help us? And this is where I'm looking for videos of the accident, investigation reports. Um, I'm asking people to preserve evidence or preserve information for us. You know, I had a case in which a claimant alleged that a box of Pop-Tarts fell off of a high uh, uh, shelf and struck them in their head, and that's what caused their TBI, their traumatic brain injury. And, you know, what we did was we said, okay, could you please, you know, take that box of Pop-Tarts? And, and, you know, of course, I wanted to see, is this like an industrial-sized box of Pop-Tarts that weighs 40 pounds, or is it like the one I have in my house? And it's, you know, a couple ounces. And we're going to actually show that to our expert and have them demonstrate that this could not possibly cause a traumatic brain injury. Um, the next thing we'll do, can we take the testimony of their treating providers? Can we contradict that information? Oftentimes, the treating provider's only information in the case is going to be information given to them by the claimant, who are not the best historians. That's a historian that's going to tell crazy stories, outlandish things. Um, they're going to, uh, it's going to be replete with all sorts of subjective complaints and issues. And they're just not accurate historians. And so when we get the claimant's treating physician on the stand, we say, well, the claimant said that the thing that struck them was a box of Pop-Tarts. Did you have any idea how much that weighed? And we can confront them with those facts and we can challenge that. So that's the, the benefit uh, to our opportunity to cross-examine them. Next, um, is the medical record vulnerable to those other attacks, right? Is it, uh, does it contain information that the doctor can't possibly testify to? Like information that they just signed the report, they never actually saw the patient. Uh, my goal in our cases is to look for ways to create jeopardy or leverage so that we can move these cases forward. 
and oftentimes that is done by obtaining the testimony of a medical provider. All right, what happens when the judge receives medical that's contradictory? And remember, uh, in some jurisdictions, the judge has to say one or the other doctor is right or wrong, not in this jurisdiction. So two different doctors uh, having two different opinions as to the nature and extent of residual disability, for example, the judge doesn't have to accept one or the other, or or he can accept them in part or in uh, in or, or can weight the different opinions. So they can come up with their own essentially uh, opinion. However, the judge can only accept a medical opinion when there is a rational and objective basis for that opinion. So it's pure speculation, uh, surmises, uh, answers from doctors like, in my experience, right, uh, in my experience, people with these injuries have this amount of disability. Well, we're not asking about your experience. That, that's speculative, right? That's, that's a surmise. Uh, this person's per, uh, uh, residual impairment, what is it? You know, that, we're going to be talking about something much more specific. Uh, and because the board is free to accept or reject uh, medical evidence in whole or in part. Well, because of that, we have to be really thoughtful about the types of, of records that we're going to get into the court and how specifically we're going to cross-examine our adversary. Now, to get there, and, and one of the biggest fights we're going to have in workers' compensation in New York is, is the claimant at maximum medical improvement? In fact, there's been so much fights about maximum medical improvement that the chair of the Workers' Compensation Board had to address it, and they had to issue memorandums uh, to define what maximum medical improvement is and to, uh, pre and to challenge what's been going on, uh, particularly by claimants who say, hey, you know what, I'm going to maybe someday get a surgery, right? Because remember, they're avoiding a finding of maximum medical improvement by delaying treatment, delaying diagnostics. How about when their current doctor says, Oh, good news, you're doing so much better. I think the next time I see you, I'm going to clear you to return to work. Good news, next time you've got an appointment in two weeks, I expect it, that time I'm probably gonna clear you. Guess what, you know what the claimant does? They choose a new doctor, they fire that doctor, they go on to a new doctor. So that's the moment uh, we really have to be in there and ready to, to make that push. Um, they also, is once they reach maximum medical improvement, and sometimes we have to do this by way of litigation, then they'll bring in the new body part. Right? I call that the start over. That's a redo. Let's go back to the beginning and try it all again. Right? So those are the, the things they do. So we've got to be really mindful about that. And there's been so much fights and so much litigation about has the claimant reached maximum medical improvement that the, the board itself had to address this. And they issued a memorandum, and this is more than 10 years ago, to address what, what was really some bad behavior. Uh, and the bad behavior is the claimant who would merely assert that there was the possibility of future treatment. So they would sort of have to admit, like, yeah, I've been getting chiropractic adjustments for two years and physical therapy. Nothing's got, I'm, I'm the same as I was. But maybe someday there's going to be a surgery that's going to save me. Or a surgery was discussed. I haven't decided to take it or not. Uh, and for that reason, Judge, you can't find that I've reached maximum medical improvement. So the board has addressed this and said, nope, that game doesn't work anymore. Uh, you can't simply say, maybe someday I'm going to get some care. You actually have to have a real plan, meaning a pre-authorization for the surgery, scheduled for the surgery, those types of things. So they're trying to address this, and I do applaud the board for at least addressing it. Sometimes you won't see the word maximum medical improvement in the medical records, by the way. You'll see other terms. 
So the terms that we see sometimes are fixed and staple uh, or return to the office as needed, PRN. Okay, when, when they say return to office as needed, you're done, okay, that's over. Um, sometimes I'll see they have res resumed their normal level of functioning, that's maximum medical improvement. Sometimes our medical experts won't say maximum medical improvement, they'll just say no need for further treatment from my specialty's standpoint. And that's fine too, all those things are maximum medical improvement. Once you've received that, now it's your opportunity to go into court and say, okay, we are at maximum medical improvement, judge, stop the payments. Okay, now, two different sort of choices can happen. First, you're you generally are going to have to litigate this with the use of a medical expert. And when you're doing that and the, your IME finds permanent residual disability, guess what? Now we know we're into uh, the next part of the case, which is resolving that amount of permanent residual disability, if any. And this is really, really where we should be talking about what the overall exposure in the case is and how we're best going to close it. To litigate this, and again, uh, it's very rare that a, a treating physician finds the claimant to reach maximum medical improvement on their own. Um, we need to litigate this generally, and we'll have to prepare to cross-examine the claimant doctor. We're going to want to raise objections. We want to get concessions from the doctor. I want the doctor to say things like, yes, they could work. Because so many times when we're cross-examining claimant's physician, the physician will say, well, my opinion is they're totally disabled. They can't work. They'll say, well, judge, uh, doctor, not in the job they had at the time of loss, any job. And that will then generally get them to give us a concession, say, well, I guess there are some jobs they could do. And once that's happened, they've made that concession, now we're moving the ball forward. You're going to want to, if you have it, to, br to bring in non-medical information at this point to either support that the claimant's at maximum medical improvement or to challenge the doctor's statements in that you'll have some contradictory facts that you can bring into your case. Our practice, by the way, here is, once depositions are taken and testimonies taken, we're going to sum summarize that in a brief for the judge. And the reason I like to do that is that it makes it easy for the judge to agree with us when we write up in advance for the judge what their opinion should be. All right, so litigating this requires a lot of contact with medical experts and with the claimant's treating physician. And now I'm going to talk about our next thing, which is the, the challenges with undue influence in this jurisdiction. So in this jurisdiction, contacts with physicians and experts are extremely limited by both the workers' compensation law and the rules and the statutes. We've got to strictly comply with the rules about uh, communicating with physicians, even physicians that we hire as an expert. In fact, section 137 of the workers' compensation law limits our ability to communicate with our physicians. And it limits our ability to have out of court or ex parte communication with our physician that is not copied to all sides. So that really limits the efficacy of our IMEs. Now our IMEs are not impartial, right, because we're selecting these, these doctors, but they are truly independent. I can't control what my impartial medical evaluator is going to say in their report, right? I can give them a list of questions to answer, I can provide them with medical summaries, I can even communicate with them in written correspondence, copied to all parties and the judge, but I can't tell them what to say in their report. And under section 137, once they come up with their uh, report on findings, they have to give it to all parties the same way the same day, which means I don't get a chance to tinker with their report and fix it for them. Now, there's a lot of, um, rules about how they can be contacted. 
And the answer is that they should not be contacted by either side. And this also goes for the treating physician. The treating physician, the claimant selected treating physician, should not be controlled and directed by their um, uh, workers' compensation attorney. And if they do that, and we can find evidence that they've done it, then that healthcare professional's reports and um, records should be stricken from the record, precluded. There's case law on this. The case law is, is, is pretty good for, our, for the defense side. The claimant should not be allowed to present any witness evidence that they have unduly influenced. So even a claimant's discussion between claimant's counsel and the treating physician, verbal discussions that we're not copied in on, I'm going to argue that that's an undue influence. That's why every time I depose one of their doctors, I always ask them, did you have any communication with the, uh, the workers' compensation attorney? Now, in the case that I'm citing right here on the board from 2013, that was my case. Uh, it's called uh, Pakzinski. And in that case, Pakzinski had two claims. He had a workers' compensation claim against his employer, and he also had a civil action against somebody else. And Pakzinski had the same attorney in both cases. And so when I put his physician on the stand and the physician started lying his ass off, I said, wait a second, did, did you have any communication with, uh, with counsel, opposing counsel in this case? He said, yeah, I, I did. And opposing counsel said, well, I'm allowed to speak to him, Greg, because I, I, I know in the workers' comp context I'm not allowed to, but in the civil action I am allowed to speak to his treating physicians. And I said, well, that's cute, but that's not what the law says. Um, and he tried to explain that away. Well, we took that all the way up to the board, and the board panel came back and said, no, it doesn't matter what context you represent a claimant in, if they have a workers' compensation claim, you're not allowed to influence their medical provider and have out-of-court or ex parte communications with them. So that's really powerful and helps us when we're taking the testimony of the claimants, doctors. So when we're taking their testimony, we're challenging this issue or we're raising undue influence. Uh, so that's something to be thoughtful about, and are you doing that in every case? Uh, we're going to ask them during their testimony, we're going to ask that provider if they were contacted by claimant's counsel or any other party, and see what they say. They often will tell us the truth. All right, challenging specific treatment is going to rely on your knowledge of the medical treatment guidelines. The medical treatment guidelines control medical care in New York with only two exceptions. So there are some treatments that don't aren't covered by the guidelines, there's very few, uh, and, that, that, and also treatments that are non-guidelines uh, that cost less than $1,000. So there are currently 17 medical treatment guidelines in this jurisdiction that really cover almost every uh, condition that you're gonna see uh, all, all the time. I don't really wanna spend my time and effort explaining to people how the medical treatment guidelines work because uh, the Workers' Compensation Board has tremendous resources for this on their website. This is one of those areas where I really like take my hat off to the Workers' Compensation Board and I say, you did a good job on really putting together great training on this. And there is great training available on their website. We require everyone that works at Lois LLC to go through that training uh, because it really helps you understand what kind of treatment exceeds the guidelines. Um, they do change the principles and they have changed the guidelines in the last couple few years since 2018. Um, 2020, they've added more uh, pages uh, and, and more uh, types of uh, conditions that they're covering. It's just really useful. Uh, so knowing this uh, and being able to apply that is useful in excluding and challenging unnecessary treatment. I think it's table stakes for being able to do that. Uh, after 2022, the board in, uh, 
uh, started a new website that uh, is intended to, to resolve medical treatment disputes. It's called the Onboard System. Uh, it is currently actually called Onboard colon Limited Release because it is allegedly still in beta and they're going to try to put more um, into this system. Uh, it's really designed to help the parties resolve medical disputes. And there are specific timelines for what are called prior authorization requests. And each one of those requests has to be responded to within a specific time. The way this works is there are multiple levels of review um, that each case goes through. Uh, level one, a reviewer says, hey, this treatment exceeds the medical treatment guidelines. Uh, it can be either granted or denied. If it is denied, it will go up to a level two, could be uh, appealed, sorry, to a level two, where an actual physician, uh, often contracted uh, by the payer, will review and decide whether or not that treatment is um, should be authorized under the medical treatment guidelines. If there's still a dispute there, it will go to a workers' compensation judge who will make that decision about whether that treatment should be allowed. Now, we spend a lot of time disputing and challenging treatments because we're trying to control care and we're trying to limit it. Remember, the claimant is always attempting to stretch these cases out and extend their periods of wage replacement. The last method that we have to challenge this, of course, is independent medical examinations. Remember, they're not really independent or impartial because we're selecting them. I cannot direct them as to what to say. Remember that undue influence we just talked about. But of course, we can influence the selection of the doctor and therefore relatively predict what they're going to do. I also recommend that if you do not want to go through the risk of doing an independent medical evaluation, because remember, that has to be revealed to all parties, you can also do an independent records review or evaluation in this jurisdiction. And that way, uh, you can get a feel for what the doctors are going to say before you actually go and get that doctor. Our opinion is that defense counsel should recommend and vet that IME doctor for you and write that cover letter. When we're thinking about the best IME doctor, I'm also thinking, what's the right specialty? What's the right training? What are their credentials? Internally, our best practice is to always think about how well they're going to testify and how we're going to get them to testify and how we're going to present their testimony in the way that's most effective. Our best practice is really to go back through our IME database here. Uh, just in the last five years, uh, we've got thousands and thousands of them, so we really have a great idea of who's working and who's not. I did a little uh, search on our system last month uh, to look at arthroscopic left elbow cases, just IME reports, um, and just within the last year. So we found 78 prior reports, and you can go through those, you know, filter them by recency and location, and then what the outcomes were, and then ultimately how those cases turned out, and really come up with a really good cross-examination plan. Um, when should we get an IME? Well, whenever they raise a new body part, you should be thinking, how am I going to challenge or exclude that body part? Uh, when the claimant is resisting being found at maximum medical improvement, that's another opportunity for us to maybe get a medical expert to give us an opinion. Um, when, they, when the treating doctor refuses to find maximum medical improvement, I mean, they just keep stretching out care and it seems like it's never going to get anywhere. And the other time is a little bit uh, counterintuitive, but it's not for medical purposes at all. Uh, maybe you want a place to claim it under covert surveillance and you have not been successful in being able to do so. 
forcing them to go to an independent medical examination when you can control where they're going to be at a specific time and place is a useful way of collecting information for them for the purposes of challenging them uh, and their actual activities. Beware again of section 137. Um, that is the section of the law which limits our use of independent medical examiners and limits our contact with them. So to get a great independent medical evaluation, really the cover letter is the key. Uh, remember, because we can't provide anything to our independent medical evaluator that's not being provided to all parties and filed with the court, that cover letter really should contain uh, the best information that we can put together. Um, and because the doctor is gonna to have to rely on that, that's our best way of shaping the outcome of that independent medical evaluation. Uh, all right, let me just address a couple loose ends here. Um, what is an EC-325? You'll sometimes see um, an EC-325, which is an order of the chair issued by the board directing specific medical care or limiting care. Um, those are appealable, by the way, even though they say they are not. Um, they say they're not repealable, but you can appeal them by way of letter. Um, we have also a lot of issues in, early on with the onboard system with medical treatment being approved despite the fact that we were litigating that. Uh, we also saw issues with repetitive resubmits. So a doctor submitting authorization for specific care and us challenging it and winning, and then the doctor just turning around the next day and resubmitting that uh, same request for authorization. So be on the lookout for that game of repetitive resubmits. All right, as we close down, let's do some practical takeaways. Most challenges to temporary disability or medical treatment are tactical, meaning the claimant can bring them again. But keeping out unrelated body parts and reducing lost time is gonna have a strategic impact on your case. It's gonna help you reduce overall exposure, particularly when it comes to protracted healing period. I always tell my attorneys, please use common sense when considering litigating these issues. It is generally not worth litigating something for six months where the treatment itself would only cost $300. Okay, so let's just you know bring some, uh, some level of uh, proportionality to these disputes. Um, even section 21 presumptions can be rebutted if you are uh, effective. And always look to the rules for ways to create jeopardy. You know, Looking to the rules to create jeopardy on, in regards to um, undue influence for adversaries, uh, that's been really effective for us in winning cases. When you uh, challenge unnecessary body parts, you are reducing overall exposure by A, getting the body part excluded from the award, but also it's going to reduce the money that would be uh, potentially awarded in a protracted healing period. So really two benefits to doing that. All right, let's jump over to questions and answers. I got about five minutes left in this hour and I'm hoping there are some good questions here. Okay, so Michael asked the question, Greg, how long are you expected to wait for surgery to be scheduled and or perform before we can take action? Sometimes long periods of time can go by between when the prior authorization request is approved and when the actual surgery is scheduled. All right, great. So I, you got to use common sense with this one. Uh, two weeks, three weeks. I mean, if I was in pain and someone offered me treatment to repair the pain or reduce the pain or restore functionality, I wouldn't wait more to come. I would get going. You know, at least maybe you're not going to have that thing done, but at least you're going to have it scheduled. So I think we should challenge on that. Um, okay, Michael also says, Greg, I'm loving the lowest merch. I'll take a large. <laughs> All right, I should open a store. Um, 
All right. Another question. In another session, you mentioned the average amount of time it typically takes to get someone in New York to maximum medical improvement. <clears throat> yes, I don't remember the time it takes, but it was a staggering amount of time. Yeah, the statistic came, actually, uh, that I quoted, came from the um, report of the board uh, that you can find on the Compensation Rating Inspection Bureau's site. The reason they adopted the medical treatment guidelines because it was the average time to MMI was 6.4 years, uh, which is insane. Uh, so that was the number that uh, well, I've always quoted because it's crazy, but it is found in the annual report of the Workers' Compensation Board. And if you ever want to know more about the system, that's a great resource to go to, uh, to just to learn the ins and outs of the uh, how the system itself is organized. All right. Jonathan says, uh, will you be providing a copy of this presentation? I'd like to get some of the links. So yes, looking in the handout section here, you should see a copy of that. And then this entire presentation and the video and the audio is going to be on our firm website, usually by the end of the week. So you can get a link to that. Suzanne says, Greg, if the claimant hasn't had medical in more than 90 days, what can we do? Well, the answer is, if you're not under a court order, meaning there is no order of conti carrier continue payment or CCP, just stop paying, okay? No medical went stale. If you are under an order, you can file a request for further action, uh, dash two, so carrier request for further action, and saying, judge, you should terminate benefits because they're no longer seeking care. Unfortunately, you have to copy that to opposing counsel and they'll generally remind their client to go back and get some medical care. Uh, but again, still a useful thing to do to raise some jeopardy. All right, that's all the questions I got. Uh, thanks for joining me today, guys. This will be on our firm website next week. Um, if you enjoyed this, I would also say uh, check out my partner's podcast. It's called Third Fridays. Um, it's released each month on the third Friday of the month. Really excellent conversations about a higher order or 201 level, I would say, workers' compensation discussions. So please join us for that. Um, all right, everybody, have a great rest of your day and see you next month.